like start a family. Like we gotta get all puffed out to the max. No, for sure. Scarfing up everything in sight. I'm sure. I don't know. You know, like oh, I get so fat and all, and what happened to my zits? I get so grody. And who decides? It's totally gnarly birth control. I'm Spun Kenner Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to Songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster, the podcast where we highlight the songs and bands from our favorite decade that either have largely been forgotten or never got much notice in the first place. On this episode, we're joined by frequent Woodpile guest and lead singer of the Mighty Jabronis, Cat Taylor, who's going to help us talk about Q-Feel, Guadalcanal Diary, The Professionals, E.G. Daily, Diesel, and Divinals, among others. So the, the band I want to talk about first is called Q-Feel, and they have a self-titled record. It's the only record they have, and they are British. I guess if they had a hit, it's a song called Dancing in Heaven. The song did get played in the, the movie Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Did you ever see that classic? I never saw it, but I do remember the, I remember the movie existing. But, right. Yeah. You know, it's super cheesy. It actually probably makes more sense than like Streets of the Fire. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it stars uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. And then when I say Sarah Jessica Parker, I mean a very young, still of a teenager, and Helen Hunt and Shannon Dotry. Anyway, because it was in the movie, it ended up getting some traction over here. <music> you know, there are typical. I would say a quintessential, I guess, pop new wave, I guess you would call it, mm-hmm. where, you know, they got the, the big airy guitars, you got the synth bass line type of thing. I'd say pretty similar to, like, Human League, maybe maybe Thompson Twins. I guess my favorite song by them on this album is called Time Waits for No One. I gotta say, I guess I got this from DJing. You know, when you buy an album, record or CD, whatever, my method of operation is you take off the tracks that are great, and the other tracks you you discard. Like so, if it's a CD, you just you know suck them onto a hard drive, or if you've bought the album digitally, you just delete the other ones that you don't like. Because especially when you're DJing, you want to you know go to your file and find everything's a winner, right? You don't want to, have to sift through a bunch of stuff. That's how I am about yeah. things. I guess that's a DJ thing because. Uh, to me, I'm I'm more of a completist. It's like I feel I've, I've got to have the whole album if mm-hmm. I like a band at all. I'm I know there's a lot of people DJs or not. They're just like, oh, I just want that song or that right. song. And to me, it's like, no, I want I want the whole album. And I'm going to usually listen to the whole album. Right. But even if I'm not, I, I want to have it. You know, yeah. I, just for completion purposes. I used to be that way, and I one day just I think because of the DJing thing, and and then it would just bring me so much joy that. Every time that I would like go through a file and like start just listening to songs, like everything was just, like the songs that moved me, you know. Instead of having like, oh, that song's dull. I wish he had never recorded that. <laughs> but I do understand your angle because I, I used to do that. But well, part partly too with me, it's almost like if I like a band, I like everything they do. It's right. Hard, very few times that I'll like only like one or two songs by a 
a band that's even rarer though, like half there's music and half not. Mm -hmm. you know, sure, there's going to be maybe one or two tracks that are an exception for each group, right. but I don't know. I, I typically like a band sound. I like everything. I must be more picky than you then, because even groups that I really, really love as a whole, eh, they got some turkeys. It's not that I think that they're worthless. I just like I don't want the turkeys. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd say turkeys, but yeah, I mean, every I don't think any band's perfect. Every band's no, probably got one or not. two turkeys, but yeah, I guess with me, it's like only one or two turkeys right. in, in their entire output. But I mean, then there's the stuff that's like you know solid gold, you right? Know, standard too. It's you know I could definitely make take all my favorite bands and and make like my own version of their greatest hits. Sure, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean I don't want the other stuff too, and especially if I like the band because. I'm going to get tired of listening to those same songs. And even if it's something I may have not liked as much the first time, I might come back to it later and like it a little more later. Well, I brought all of this up to say it was on this self-titled record, their only record, Q Feel, every song's a winner, truly. You gotta love the cover here. It's four guys. You, you would assume that they did the photo session, they're holding nothing, but somebody later went in and added some fluorescent squiggly lines. But maybe it's some kind of power thing. Yeah, it's kind of like they're all like the different, like if you read your comics, you know, the Green Lantern, and you know, they have, have all the different lanterns, have the Red Lanterns and the Yellow Lanterns and all, so they've all got their individual power oh. source. Or maybe it's like, it's There's like, other lanterns besides the green one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, oh, that's man. the whole thing, yeah. I, mean, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, you know, if you want to get into comics now, you have the Green Lantern. <laughs> then there was, like, the Green Lantern Corps. So there's, like, a bunch more Green Lanterns. Uh, then they found out there's every color of the Rainbow Lantern. Well, maybe the, these Q-Feel people are somehow related to the Lantern It could be. could be that, or it could be, like, the Kiss comics, where each uh, member of Kiss has their own talisman that has powers. <laughs> and gives them their unique powers. So, yeah. Uh, that's maybe awesome. Q-Feel's Q really onto something. There. Yeah, maybe so. What is interesting interesting is Martin Page is a singer and he went on to do a lot of great things and I don't know why Q-Phil didn't last longer than they did but Martin Page the lead singer he went on to write some pretty big songs uh, with you know Bernie Taupin the guy hangs out with Elton John yeah that guy <laughs> yeah. anyway together uh, Martin Page and Bernie wrote the Starship song We Built the City well I thought you said Martin Page did a lot of great things <laughs> don't you remember well, that's a. I love it, but I think it's just because of the. I remember the time I, where oh, I was, you know. But yeah, for me, it's just the opposite. I remember the time where I was, and it's like you could not get away from that song. <laughs> and it was just, you know, it was one of those songs that, like, when it first came out, it was just like any other pop song. But like a lot of songs at that time, mm -hmm. they got so overplayed on the radio that if I didn't really like them at first. Mm -hmm. If I like disliked it a little bit, I learned to hate it. I remember that me and my friends used to sing it. We built the city on Edna's rolls. <laughs> what the? <laughs> it was there's some old lady named Edna that used to make these old hardtack rolls. <laughs> anyway, uh, they also wrote together Hart's song "These Dreams." These Also wrote Go West, that big hit they had, The King of Wishful Thinking. And they also wrote Faithful for Go West. He also played keyboards on the Ghostbusters song, Ray Parker Jr.
in the nineties, he actually put out some solo music under his name Martin Page, and he had a a, a pretty big hit in the uh, adult adult video world. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> actually, no, in the adult album okay. charts, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I know here in Nashville, Lightning 100 played it quite a bit. The song called In the House of Stone and Light. I shall not cry for the blood might not leave behind when I go in the house of stone and light. It almost sounds like a Seal song in, in some ways. It, it makes me wonder if Martin Page wrote stuff for Seal as well, but there's, it has that same feel about it. Cat Taylor, who are we going to talk about now? Well, I'm going to start off talking about the professionals. Uh, the professionals, you you are familiar with them to a degree right. because you've watched the movie Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I have because of you. Yeah, that's right. We were talking about that, and yeah. I'll let, let you borrow the DVD. I never heard of that film, I, and I happened on another 80s podcast, I heard them talking about it. I'm like, what? And I couldn't believe it when I, when I, and you was like, oh yeah, I know about that movie, and I got it, and so... When I was watching it, I was like, I can't believe this happened. And like, you don't know about it more because it's got so many icons in it. And it's a pretty good movie, really. Yeah. Well, it's one of those 80s. It's like what they call a 1980s cult classic. Everything's so different in the 80s and today is the way people found out about things and how it got released. So right. there was a, a lot more room for, for cult classics in the 80s like right. that, like Undiscovered Gems. Than, it seems like nowadays, it's I don't know, you'd think it would be that way because there's so much out on the internet. But... I, I just don't hear like a lot of people discovering like you know, undiscovered you know, gems of movies and things. It just seems like everything's yeah. big or, or they don't ever get anywhere. Right. Yeah. And maybe that's just me because yeah. I was growing up in the time when all this was happening. But. Well, folks, if you haven't seen The Fabulous Stains, I recommend it. I assume mm-hmm. you do as well. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's a great movie. Yeah. But it's a fun movie. Right. And it's a good movie. And it's more like a, I don't know, a parody kind of a way about like a bands going through the levels of success. You don't fool me for a minute. I know all about you. You came here tonight thinking you'd see some cute and wonderful rock star. And you hoped maybe he'd take one look at you from up on that stage and he'd fall in love with you just like that. Then your savior could take you out of this dump of a town you live in. Bitches on trucks. Suckers! You've got the headlining band who's the big, who's leading this tour. And they're the, they're kind of the guys that are, that are on top, but they're on their way down. They've kind Mm -hmm. of peaked. The singer's played by, um, the guy from the tubes. Then you have... The middle band, this is the one that's like, they're on their way up, they're in the new big thing, and they're kind of pissing off the headlining band because they're they're taking over everything. They're called the Looters. In the movie, the Looters are played by, they got the actor Ray Winston playing the vocalist, Paul Seminen from The Clash playing the bass player, and Steve Jones from The Sex Pistols and playing the guitar player, and Paul Cook from The Sex Pistols playing the drummer. And the song that they do in the movie, I, I can't remember if they do more than once, but the main song that it's a hit is Join the Professionals. Which is actually a song that was written and recorded by the band The Professionals, which actually does in real life or did feature Steve Jones and Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols. So which came first, the the Professionals or this movie? The Professionals came first, but kind of a convoluted thing the way that how the movie played into it. And given the actual history, the Professionals 
Yeah, of course, everyone knows who the Sex Pistols are and about the Sex Pistols. Who are they again? Yeah, from some rooms <laughs> from England. Um, didn't didn't amount to anything. They have one album, you know. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and of course, anyone with even a cursory knowledge of, of punk rock music knows about that. But and a lot of people kind of know kind of where things went after that, but not necessarily everyone. So after that first Sex Pistols album, I mean, the whole band was volatile the whole time, and it was like a situation where a mix of good timing and bad timing made and ended their career. But after the big, ever, you know, the Never Mind the Bollocks, the big Sex Pistols album and all that. She was a girl from Birmingham. She just had an abortion. She was a case of insanity. Her name was Pauline. She lived in a tree. What happened after that was first one to quit was Johnny Rotten, John Wyden. And I'm wearing a Public Image Limited t-shirt right oh, now. Yeah. Of course, he went off and formed that. But Malcolm McLaren, the manager uh, behind the Sex Pistols, he wanted to keep the band going. So he still had Sid Vicious and um, uh, Steve Jones and Paul Cook involved. And he went to make this movie called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which is a fictionalized account of the creation of the Sex Pistols. And he's like, he was the mastermind behind it and all that. You know, he wanted Johnny Rotten to help with it. And Johnny Rotten was like, you know, fuck you, that's shite. You know, <laughs> like typical Johnny Rotten. I'm, yeah, I won't. He's like, he, he refused to even be involved with it. And Sid Vicious is only barely involved with it. He also ended up quitting at the time and going off to do his own solo thing. So they were, in theory, going to keep the Sex Pistols together with just... Originally, it was going to be Steve Jones, Sid Vicious, and Paul Cook. And, but Sid quit, and then it ended up being just Steve Jones and Paul Cook. And they brought in, on the studio recordings, the few that they did after that for the great rock and roll swindle. They used Andy Allen, who was the bass player for the Lightning Raiders, uh, on bass. Although in photos, they have a picture of an actor wearing a Nazi uniform. So, <laughs> yeah, so what's up with that? And vocalist, it was kind of a mix. I mean, some of the new songs they wrote, Steve Jones did the vocals. Paul Cook did the vocals on one song called Silly Thing. And then they recorded a couple songs with Ronnie Biggs. If you heard about the Great Train Robbery, the Great Train Robbery was a whole heist of like 15 guys that orchestrated this thing to basically rob a train. And Ronnie Biggs is one of them. When they, back in the 60s? Yeah, yeah, back in the 60s, yeah. yeah. Isn't Buster... That movie Buster about one of those guys? I don't know. But I know Ronnie Biggs became like the big, even though he was had a very minor part in the robbery, uh -huh. he became like the biggest name involved with yeah, it. Yeah, I think Phil Collins plays him. I, I could be, I'll check that yeah, later. Yeah, you have to sure. check that out, yeah. yeah. But anyway, so because, you know, Malcolm McCurran, he's always wanting spectacle and everything, mm -hmm. he had him record a few songs with Ronnie Biggs, who was living in, in Brazil, so he wouldn't get extradited and get arrested, because he actually was... He was one of the ones that was arrested and escaped from prison okay. and went off to Brazil. So they had a known criminal singing a couple songs with them. Pretty punk. Yeah. And they had an actor that called himself Tin Pole Tudor singing a few songs. So that's kind of was how the professional sort of started. Was Steve Jones was writing these songs. A couple of them got cut from the movie, but two of them made it on the soundtrack: "Lonely Boy" and silly thing under the name the Sex Pistols but if you listen to them and you listen to the professionals they sound more like the professionals than the Sex Pistols. You know the band officially broke up but Steve Jones, uh, Paul Cook and Andy Allen said we're gonna go on and form a new band called the Professionals. It was a big deal you know former Sex Pistols are gonna release an album with the Professionals and kind of like the Sex Pistols they ran into so many issues with like bad timing and bad luck and everything but in this case, it was none, none of it worked to their advantage. It was all to their disadvantage. They were scheduled to release the album in August of 1980. And um, they ended up putting out their first single only at that time called Just Another Dream. Just the other night when I crashed out in the 
this was kind of received very moderately. It, it had poor sales. The label said, we're going to postpone the album until October. But even then, October comes around and only a single was released. Another single was released called One, Two, Three. Got a little more traction. Uh, people liked it a little better. It was a little more punk sounding. You know, that's so it got critical acclaim, but it still didn't sell that well. So then they said, oh, you know, well, the album's going to be postponed again. And and during this time, Andy Allen was replaced by, you know, and this is one reason the label gave him an excuse we're going to postpone the album is Andy Allen's going to be replaced by uh, Paul Myers from Subway Sect as a new bass player. And we're going to add a second guitar player named Ray McVie. So now we're going to delay the album until 1981 sometime. Another reason, too, that they didn't publicize was Steve Jones had a major heroin problem. And so that was holding up a lot of things. And also, that was one of the reasons for they, they gave for sacking Andy Allen is they felt like he was contributing and enabling Steve Jones with his heroin addiction. So now the album's going to be postponed until sometime in 1981. And once again, they're going to release a single, Join the Professionals, at the end of 1980. They use that in the movie, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stain. So that was probably the the biggest traction that they got, well, let me backtrack. They announced that the single was going to be released at that time. They didn't come out then. What came out was the sampler called Cash Cows, and the professionals were on there with a song called Kick Down the Doors. Kick down the doors. So that album came out in November of 1980. But then Andy Allen came back and sued the label saying, I didn't get permission for you to release that. I'm playing on that track. I didn't get paid for it. So they quickly pulled all the samplers out. So if you can find one of those, it's a, it's a collector's item now. And then they reissued the sampler with the professional's track being replaced by the band magazine. And they said, well, we're going to have to re-record the entire album with the new members because you know, Andy Allen's going to sue the label. So there's a further delay <laughs> on the album coming out. Finally, in November of 1981, they finally released the re-recorded album. Yeah, and it didn't... Uh, Do that well. No, it didn't. Um, but you like it. I, I like it okay. I mean, there were songs I really like a lot, but when I listen to it as a whole album, if you pick out like one or two songs, I think it's really good. But when you listen to it all together, it's very little variety in it. Every song is the same pace, same tempo. There's not a lot of um, hooks, not a lot of changes in melody. Or I mean, Join the Professionals is the best song on there, and everything else kind of sounds like a lesser version of that. Mm -hmm. And then also to promote the album, they did a short U.S. tour, and they never got back to the United Kingdom to tour for it. Because um, one thing that happened that cut their first tour short was the, all the members of the band were in a car wreck except for Steve Jones. That put things off. And then during all this time, of course, Steve Jones isn't doing any better with his heroin problem. And they ended up doing a second U.S. tour in 1982. Supposed, I guess, to, they were going to have a second album come out which they never recorded anything for, but I guess that was the plan for you that, or it was a, po a later tour to try to reinterest them in the first album. But once again, crazy timing. So it seemed like at this point, they weren't even bothering the United Kingdom. They were, th they were hinging everything on the US. But when they did that 1982 tour, they had the opportunity to open for The Clash. And The Clash is you know huge everywhere by, by this point. And for people that like The Clash, if the professionals are gonna get fans, you would think that'd be a great opportunity, open for them and expose themselves to a wider audience. Well, they turned down the offer to do the tour with The Clash. Wow. Yeah. I Why? Guess I, wanted, I don't know. I, mean, I, I couldn't find the reason. I, I assume that 
they decide to headline on their own and do smaller clubs or whatever. Hmm. I mean, between so it just seemed like there's a situation where a lot of stupid decisions, a lot of um, drug problems, a lot of just bad timing and things happening prevented the professionals forever being what they could have been. But even so, you know, when I listened to the album as a whole, as opposed to just a track or two, mm-hmm. I think they needed something to help. I mean, producers. Yeah, I mean, Steve Jones is a great guitar player, or better, I think, some help with the writing. And I think he uh, he contributed a lot to the Sex Pistols songwriting. But it really, what it really shows me is the genius behind the Sex Pistols songs that made them so good. Songwriting-wise, is Glenn Matlock, the original bass player. But I think the professionals really proves that he was the prime songwriter hmm. of everything. And of course, you can't deny um, John Lydon's personality, his voice, mm-hmm. his lyrics. I think those are your magic pieces there that right. made the Sex Pistols so great. Was you know Johnny Rotten and, and Glenn Matlock. Did Glenn Matlock go on to do other things? He did, but it was kind of weird because he never really got known for doing anything because he was more like a secret weapon to the Sex Pistols because although he wrote the lion's share of those songs on Nevermind the Bollocks and he played on all of the, all, all the tracks in the studio. By the time that album came out, he was out of the band and Sid Vicious was in. Right. And of course, Sid Vicious was got all the attention because he was a spectacle. Right. But Sid Vicious couldn't play a note. <laughs> he was nothing but you know, a symbol of the band, basically. Right. So, little Matlock, yeah, I mean, he did some things after that. You're gonna wake up one fine morning Wake up and find me gone Never became any kind of household name, or it wasn't like any. He kind didn't of write uh, a song as good as "We Built the City." Right. <laughs> well, he probably wrote songs. I'd say every song he wrote was better than "We Built the City." Oh but, man! <laughs> but yeah, he didn't write anything that would that would make him that kind of money. Of "We Built the City." Okay. Yeah, I, I will also say that you know I mentioned that original Professionals album that had Andy Allen on it. Mm-hmm. They did finally release a a limited edition version of that. They released everything, a thousand copies on vinyl and a thousand copies on CD in 1990. So those are collectible if you can never find those. I guess you don't have it. No, I, I got the the reissue CD that came out in like much later that has like, it's the re-recorded stuff with, with the new band, but every song has got the original album and all the singles that they released, mm. with the exception of like a couple of B-sides. Like mm-hmm. the first single had a B-side that was just an instrumental. It's not on the CD. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay, the next person I want to talk about is Miss Elizabeth Daly, better known as E.G. Daly, but you may not know her at all because she is not in the, I don't think, the public consciousness, but you do know her whether you realize it or not. Before we get into her music, I'll go through an abbreviated resume for her. As an actress, she played Dottie on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the movie, his girlfriend. Wait, I want to talk to you first. You are talking to me. No, I want your undivided attention. Look, PB, this is important. Does someone want to ask you? Mm-hmm. I want to know if you'll do something. What? I want to know if you'll go someplace with me. Like where? She also was the voice of Cherry on his TV show, The PB's Playhouse. She was in Valley Girl. She was one of uh, yeah, Deborah Foreman's friends. Yeah, Julie, the main girl here yeah, in Valley thank you. Girl. Help me with that. It's one of my favorite 80s movies. Oh, I get so fat and all and... What happened to my zits? I get so dirty. She was in the movie Fandango. Have you ever seen that film? No. Oh, it's great. It's, just... a, it's a great road trip movie. It's the very first film that uh, Kevin Costner had a starring role 
Judd Nelson is pretty young in it, but yeah, so she, she plays local, like kind of uh, country girl that they run into is very adorable. Right after she had the baby, down to remove her utopian tubes. No, 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 that's fallopian, darling. Fallopian? Those are books, the Bible, silly. First and second fallopians. <laughs> She is in Streets of Fire, the movie I keep making fun of, which is, I just don't think it's a very good movie. <laughs> is that Walter Hill that made that movie? I can't remember. I'm kind of like you. It's not like one of my, it's not one of my favorites. I don't right. really rave over it. Well, you're the one I bought it from. Yeah, well, it was given to me for, as, a, as a Christmas gift. It's a time capsule because of yeah. all the people that are in it. And one thing I'll give it credit for is it doesn't have a traditional sappy ending. You know? You're right. Everything good about Warriors, the Warriors, which is also made by the same guy, they try to repeat it for, for this one, but it's not... It doesn't come off very well. It doesn't have the grit, the, the grit or, or the right. um, the real feeling of but the lawyers. Yeah, it's, it's just more like, like futuristic kind of. Yeah, people hanging out in warehouses and, and mm -hmm. industrial areas, and you, you never quite figure out what they do. Like, how do you mm -hmm. eat? But, uh, <laughs> but so she's in that film. She's in the fabulous stains. It's just a small part of that. And better off dead, she's not an actress. She actually was a performer in that movie. She's like at some club singing a song. She's in the video for Rod Stewart's Young Turks. You remember that song? I do remember. I don't remember her being in the video. Though. Yeah, she plays one of the runaway teenagers. Well, yeah, but what she's really known for—we're going to talk about her music. I know I keep talking about that, but <laughs> it's her voice work, and uh, she does lots of video games and cartoons. She was Babe in the movie Babe: Pig in the City. Uh, maybe uh, cats and dogs could, um, you know, be nicer to each other. She was Tommy Pickles in The Rugrats, which I've never seen, but I, I know it's pretty popular. And this is probably my favorite role she was in. She was Buttercup in The Powerpuff Girls. I love it! The feel, the taste, the smell, the power! I now understand why Mojo's always robbing banks! Well, I... I need more! And the more I get, maybe I'll be able to save up and buy that punching bag I've been eyeing, and then I can punch! Bam! Pow! But to get to her music, I don't know if she really had any hits necessarily, but my favorite song by her is called Mind Over Matter. And it's prominent in the movie Summer School. Sound-wise, I mean, she's total pop, and it sounds a whole lot like Madonna, you might say. Well, and there's a reason. Uh, her producers were Jelly Bean Benitez and, and Stephen Bray. Stephen Bray was in the Breakfast Club, the the band which Madonna had been in that band before she went solo. And Jellybean was you know, her producer and boyfriend for a while. But So it's very similar, very electro pop. Again, a lot of the synthy bass lines. One of their very first singles they put out with her is called Say It. And another cult classic, Scarface. She had two songs on that soundtrack and it's one of those things where, I, you know, I saw the movie, I liked it a lot, but I don't think the, the soundtrack ever made an impression on me until I played, uh, and I'm ashamed to say I played this game, but the Grand Theft Auto 3, because uh, it's, it's so violent, it's, it's so, <laughs> so decadent, but it's a lot of fun. When you drive around in the car, you have options of radio stations to play, and any car that you, you steal. So there's an 80s radio station, and I, if I remember correctly, and it's basically the, the soundtrack to Scarface. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a Debbie Harry song on there uh, about the Yayo. So if you played GTA 3, you've heard her. Like 
Interestingly, her life, she was married to a guy named Rick Solomon, which I had never heard of, but apparently he's a professional gambler hmm. in that like, he plays at these like poker tournaments and stuff and you know wins millions of dollars at a time. But to bring back the, all these connections, he was also married to Shannon Dotry for nine months. <laughs> I don't know why so short. Awkward, she's difficult. Yes. He also is famous for making Paris Hilton famous because apparently they, they filmed their intercourse, we'll say, and I guess it got leaked and it, it put her on the map. I, I don't, you're saying you guess. You haven't heard the story? <laughs> no, I think I was out of the country when all this happened. Yeah, yeah I mean, that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah that was, uh, yeah, that's what happened. It was, yeah, it was a, what, probably one of the most famous sex tapes. It's one of those things when you come back after you've been gone and you're like, who is she and why is she famous? <laughs> yeah. Because like, she didn't do anything. So anyway, there's that connection. I also have to admit, because my wife asked me this recently, because I think I mentioned that Winona Ryder was one of my 80s crushes at the time. And she said, ooh, I want to know who else were your 80s crushes. And I'm thinking this is some kind of trap. It yeah. always is. <laughs> but Winona Ryder is like everybody's crush in the 80s. Oh, so. yeah. She, especially in Heathers. Yeah. Yeah, she was really adorable in that. Heathers. What was the other... The movie with Ben Stiller in it. Oh, that movie's terrible. Uh, yeah, but that was like one reality bites. That's one. Yeah, yeah, everyone loved loved her in that. I remember even Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, yeah, she's cute in that. But it's, uh, you know, Beetlejuice is probably the first time I noticed her. Mm-hmm. Although I love that movie Lucas, but I may have not recognized her because she lo- almost looks like a boy in that one. Anyway, E.G. Daly was one of my crushes, although I never knew her name at the time. I just remember I loved that movie Fandango when I was younger. And I remember just thinking oh, she was so adorable. She has a raspy voice. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's maybe her trademark, and um, she's still around. She apparently Rob Zombie must have a crush on her as well because he's put her in a couple of his films. I followed her on Instagram for a little while. She kept posting videos of her, like you know when they, people do the filter and it has like little like dog nose. Oh and, yeah, and, people do that all the time. Yeah, she now. does that all the time. Yeah. I don't know why. A lot of people do that. I don't. I don't get it. Yeah, I, I thought it was like going to be a fad for about a month, and it just keeps going. Yeah, I don't get it. But, I don't know why people like that. So much. anyway, you see that she does a lot of. Uh, cons conventions obviously she has a, a wealth of uh, stuff to sign autographs for she still records music she put like a country record out with a loneliness like a one man band you don't know you're not alone you can see me watching who you got next? Let's talk about the Divinals. Or okay. as some people there are very anal retentive about say, it's not the Divinals, it's just Divinals. Doesn't sound right to say Divinals when you're using it in a sentence. So. Okay. So anyway, obscure, maybe, maybe not. Not not really all that obscure, uh, especially with their big hit, I Touch Myself, and that came out in, in the 90s. Which was about spirituality, right? Of course, yes. <laughs> I remember that's what they said. Yeah. I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty obvious what that song is about. But anyway... So this is an 80s podcast. If you lived in America in the 80s, they were obscure. They had singles, but they were not charters in the 80s in America. They were huge in Australia, where they're from, but we don't live in Australia. No, so I don't. figured this would be a, a decent band to cover for this. Sure. And they formed right at the beginning of the 80s in 1980. The Divinals formed. It was mainly Christina Amplett, or Amplett, however you pronounce it, and Mark McEntee. They were introduced by a former member of Air Supply, uh, so oh, wow. who was Another in Australian. Guy. Yeah, he was a he was in an early version of the Divinals, but the Divinals went through several members changes, but those two were always constant. So one of the guys in Air Supply was in the Divinals. 
earlier as far as wow yeah yeah that's a leap okay yeah well you know i don't i can't i don't know how significant he was to air supply and okay. I, I didn't do much research on him because uh-huh. i mean the ones you got to concentrate on are chrissy amphlett and mark backenty because they were the ones that were consistent throughout every other member was a rotating door did i tell you that i'm all out of love <laughs> gosh <laughs> well going through the, the vinyls history so they were a club band for a while and then um a director named ken cameron he saw him playing the club, and uh, he was doing a, a movie called Monkey Grip, and he asked him if they'd do the soundtrack for the movie. So that was the first thing they released. It was a soundtrack to the film Monkey Grip in 1982. When you called to me and you shut me out like that, you make me feel ugly and stupid. But the soundtrack it hit number 25 in Australia, so it was kind of their initial rise to fame. And, and the single for it, if you've heard any other stuff from the 80s, is probably the one you've heard, Boys in Town. That hit number eight in Australia. So then in 1983, they released their first full-length album called Desperate, and it had a couple singles on it, a science fiction and Good Die Young. This is one of the frustrating things, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a completist with albums and mm-hmm. stuff, trying to get the vinyl stuff because like a lot of bands, they'll have one version that came out in Australia and one version that was the international or American release. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with Desperate. Because they had already released that soundtrack in Australia that had several songs on it. Those songs didn't appear on the Australian version of Desperate. They had some different songs. But when they released Desperate in America, they were like, well, we got to put four or five of these songs from Monkey Grip on the American version, such as Boys in Town, because best songs, good stuff. Mm-hmm. So you've got like a different American version of Desperate than the Australian version. The album didn't do great over in America, but in it was it hit number five in Australia. And then they did the same thing in 1985 with their second album, What a Life. The Australian version and the American version. And the thing about the American version is some of those songs were left off the American version of Desperate. So, so it just gets really confusing if you're trying to grab these things, but. You know, that was a big success in Australia, too. I think it hit number four. One of the singles off it, Pleasure and Pain, hit number one in Australia. In America, not so good. And then in 1988, they came out with their third album, Temperamental. Number 11 in Australia. They had a number 23 song, Hey Little Boy, which was a remake of the Hey Little Girl. And they also had a hit called Back to the Wall. That was number 33 in Australia. But in America, it didn't do so great. That's when Chrysalis Records uh, dropped them. They considered them to be a failure. And uh, they said, even though they were successful in Australia, they didn't do squat in America. Basically, you know, said, you know, the vinyls, you guys owe us over a million dollars in reimbursement from all the, because you know, everything album record labels give you is an advance. Right. And they didn't recover that from all the touring and all that. So basically, they <clears throat> said, they're just going to drop you from your contract and, uh, you know, write this off. Oh, and a couple interesting stories going backwards there. I mentioned that the only two significant members were the ones that stayed with them the whole time, but I should also point out that there was one really great song off both the American and the um, Australian version of, of Desperate called Siren. Never let you go. 
It was written by a guy named who was in the band at the time named Bjorn Olin is his name. He played uh, keyboards on most of that album, but on that particular song, he wrote it and played guitar, and he did the male vocals on that song, and it's a great song. And even it, it didn't chart that well, even in Australia. I think it only hit like number 45 or number 48 in Australia, and of course didn't do Squat in America. But it's one of my favorite songs on the album. Mm. Probably in their career, that and Boys in Town are probably my favorite songs. So he's worth mentioning just for his contribution to that song. Another interesting thing is when they were recording Temperamental, they had to change the studio they were recording in because Neil Diamond was recording the same studio and he kept complaining about the noise. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I've got about the Divinals. Of course, they, they went on past that. And you know, in the 90s, of course, they were picked up by a new label. And that's when the self-titled album came out. And I Touched Myself was like a number one or number two hit in America. So yeah. as far as being a commercial success they certainly redeemed themselves with that to me their great stuff is the desperate album or you know the monkey grip soundtrack depending on which version of desperate you're hearing and their other albums i didn't think were all that great but i thought what a life had a great song on it called um and it was a single called sleeping beauty it's a little different it's a little more it's more of a mellow ballad whereas mm-hmm. most of their other stuff is more upbeat new wave A personal story about them, I'll tell you, is um, one of those things I kick myself about every day. You know those bands that you, you never you, get to school. When you think of me, you kick yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I remember that back when I was first getting into New Wave and punk rock music, another friend of mine who's one of my favorite music friends, you know, we just we swapped new music with, he was like, you know, we were kind of always searching out for anything like that or shows and stuff, and he was like, hey, Psychedelic Furs are playing at War Memorial Auditorium with the Divinals opening. And we thought about going. I can't remember why we didn't, but man, I wish we had gone to see oh, that. Wow. <laughs> we, yeah, I would have loved to have seen it. She's passed away. But yeah, she died. Yeah, she died of breast cancer. Mark McEntee, we was talking about, he at one point was going to put together another version of the Vials and tour with a different singer, and people went ballistic basically saying, that's uh, so disrespectful. Right. You, know, you, you shouldn't do that. You know, no, It's not the Vinyls without Chrissy Amplett. And, it would be hard. I mean, she's definitely got a, a unique voice and stage presence and personality and look to her. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just one of those roles that you just couldn't see anyone filling and, and doing successfully. Okay, well, the next group I have, it has no connections with the other two in any way, shape, or form. And they, and they were not in the Fabulous Stains or had no connection to a Starship or they, they didn't build any city. But the band is called Diesel. They are a Dutch band and their first record was called Watts in a Tank. I'm not sure why, but I have heard sometimes that some of these European groups that, you know, the English is their second language and sometimes things get confused in the translation. So for example, apparently a, uh, a Swedish or Norwegian guy wrote, hit me baby one more time by Britney Spears. And what he meant to say was hit me up, oh. like on the phone, but he misunderstood how the, the phrase goes. And so it was hit me baby one more time and the record company, they made him change the title of the song. So I think that's just in the, the parentheses. People were afraid it was that they were endorsing domestic violence or something. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So. 
As, a, as just as a big nerd, can I just say when I hear the name Diesel, all I can think of is Kevin Nash as a wrestling nerd. Oh, I didn't even know who that yeah, is. I didn't figure you would. Okay. You know? yes. I think about, well, I drive a school bus and, yeah. and it stinks. But mm-hmm. anyway, if they had a hit, uh, it would be a song, and it's my favorite song. It's the one that I remember finding it. I like to say where I find these things sometimes. And I found it. I think I found all these records we talk about today in Evansville, Indiana. It just look interesting, so I bought it. And the very first song is Sausalita Summer Night. <laughs> hook is just infectious and it's hard to not like it in my mind to me they sound like if steve miller and cheap trick ended up in a hot tub together and somehow <laughs> nine months later there was a baby it would be diesel they, they're very similar to those bands as far as vocals and all that can't tell you that there's any prominent uh, member in this group, but there's a guy, uh, the drummer apparently did something else, this guy named Pim Koopman, and he used to be the drummer for a prog rock band, I guess it was supposed to be big, called Kayak. I, I'm not into prog rock, so I don't know. Hmm. They put out a second record, also in the early 80s, and I'm on the lookout for it, but um, I don't think it came out here. The song Sausalita Summer Night actually was a big hit in Canada. It went to number one. I was driving around with my brood of grandchildren in around Mammoth Cave one day, and uh, all of a sudden the Diesel song came up on our local radio station. I couldn't believe it. Wow. Even though they recorded in the early 80s, and I don't know if that's because of that stereotype that the Europeans are always kind of behind about five years and stuff, but it sounds to me like a, like a late 70s record. I should say that. It's not really nothing in the 80s about it but it did come out in the 80s so I couldn't really put an identity to it it was kind of like yeah it just sounded kind of like just rock just kind of generic yeah. rock in a way it was I mean it did have 80s production on it you know you could definitely yeah. tell it was produced in the 80s but yeah it wasn't like a style I could even nail down hardly just rock and roll man yeah just kind of yeah. like a generic rock band yeah, yeah. band I'm going to talk about from the 80s is Guadalcanal Diary. Really big on the college rock scene, you know, alternative rock stuff, on alternative rock radio, but certainly not a successful band to the mainstream, and I think they've been largely forgotten, although at the time I remember them being just played constantly on 91 Rock, the Vanderbilt station out of here, which is how I discovered them, you know, probably one of the first bands I ever heard on there. They're from Atlanta, although a lot of people thought they were from Athens, they're actually from Atlanta, and they were truly an 80s band in that uh, their ex- time frame of existence was from 1981 through 1989. <laughs> so wow. That's, uh, there, there's nothing more 80s than that. Yeah, they really could, wanted to be on could, this podcast, didn't Right, they? unless you could start in 1980 and quit in 1989. So yeah. the band was originally called Emergency Broadcast System. And then when the bassist joined, uh, she's the one that suggested the name change to, um, to Guadalcanal Diary based on the book by the same name. And she married the bass player of the band in 1988. Jeff Walls is his name, so they are or were a married couple. One interesting thing about the Wildcat Diary is unlike a lot of bands, they had the same four members their entire career, so they never had a membership change from beginning to end. They were, they were the same band. Their first release 
was an EP called Watusi Rodeo. It came out in 1983 on an independent label called DB Records. I don't have that. I looked at the track listing and I don't recognize any of the songs except for one called Dead Eyes. And that's because they re-released that later on their on their second full-length album, which is a great song. It's one of my favorites by them. The big album, the big claim to fame, and one of my favorite albums of all time came out in 1984. It was called Walking in the Shadow of the Big Man. And it it also came out on the independent label DB Records. Probably very collectible if you can find it on that label. But it was re-released in 1985 on a major label, Electra Records. And I think it's um, I think it's just one of the best records of all time. It's one mm. of my favorites. Wow. Very 80s sounding, very mixture of cowpunk and that jangly art later REM type st Athens style. But that's what they became known for. It's one of the probably one of the be the bands that best exemplifies that sound. And it was produced by a producer and who was very big in producing those 80s Athens sounding bands called, named Don Dixon. Mm -hmm. Almost every great album from of that style in that time seemed like it was produced by that southern region was produced by Don Dixon. One thing about an album like Walking the Shadow of the Big Man and a band like Walking Out Diary, sometimes you have like one great album and then nothing else. And I kind of think that way of the Violent Thems. I think they had one great album and then you know the next album was good and a lot of albums that were just kind of nondescript and then you know a few <laughs> decent songs are here and there. And that's kind of the way I feel about Walking Out Diary. Um, their second album came out in 1906 called Jamboree. And it's good. Another thing, uh, I guess, about them that really shows in this album is, I think the first album was a little more serious. Yeah, they did some, they had a few silly lyrics, and they did a few, you know, they did like a silly thing, like a kind of a punkish cover of Kumbaya, <laughs> the campfire song. Or, mm -hmm. But, but Jamboree, it seemed like their best songs, with the exception of Dead Eyes. They were a little more like blatantly funny. You know, they were. It didn't seem like they were. It was a serious an album. But they also had a different producer too. When I read about the album, when I was doing my research, it was saying it wasn't well received. What I seem to recall at the time was people liked Jamboree a lot. They liked it as much as they thought it was a really good follow-up to Walk in the Shadow of the Big Man. So I don't know. You know, my perception versus what I'm reading. What I read is, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Maybe it depends on who you're around at the time or whatever. But for whatever reason, in 1987, they released their third album called Two by Four, and they went back to get Don Dixon to produce it again. Now, in my opinion, you know, that was a, a huge drop off in quality. Every album is like, you know, it seemed like it dropped the level. Like, Walk and Shadow the Big Man I'd put up in like the top 20 albums ever. Jamboree, that's a good album, but not top 20. Two by four, it's kind of like, eh, it's okay, you know? Mm -hmm. The big song about that was called Litany. people thinking that that album just really sucked but but I'm also reading and doing my research I'm reading that Pace Magazine said it, you know, ranked at number 64 in their best albums of the 1980s which I thought was crazy I'm like 
That album is no way as good as, nowhere close to Walking the Shadow of the Big Man and not as good as Jamboree either. But anyhow, not wanting to trash talk it too much because in 1988, they released Flip Flop, also produced by Don Dixon. And in my opinion, that album sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it seemed to me that they lost like all their identity that made uh-huh. them like what was like unique and great of Walking uh-huh. the Diary. And they just become like a pop band almost. In fact, they had a they did have a, a college hit off mm-hmm. it called Always Saturday, which you might recognize. Yeah, not even good pop, just kind of right. like just bland, you know, poorly written. It's no, we built the city. It's not that bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, but Man, yeah, it's Grace way... Grace Slick is going to get mad at you. Uh, well, you know, Grace Slick's got more money than I'll ever make, so... <laughs> right. Now, there were some differences, though, significant in Flip Flop, and maybe it's one of the reasons why maybe I dislike it, but other people might like it more. I don't know why, but for instance, the earlier albums were more focused on the Murray Attaways uh, writing most of the stuff who's the main guy but all the members contributed to songs on Flip Flop mm-hmm. and um, it's definitely a more upbeat album than their other stuff in comparison to Flip Flop all three of their other albums were a lot darker in tone and Flip Flop is just more upbeat altogether very poppy sounding doesn't have that kind of moody melancholy to it a couple other singles off that album that were written by other members of the band was Vista and Pretty Is As Pretty Does So anyway, in 1989, the band decided to disband. The reason they gave is they wanted to keep being friends. And I could see that. People you've been friends with for so long, but you're also trying to do this thing together. Mm-hmm. You can just, you know, go on the road with them doing business, basically. But, you know, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty smart. I mean, they same people, four friends were in a band for together for nine years or eight years, eight to nine years. And, um, you know, call it quits just because, hey, we don't want to, you know, we, we might, we see a little tension here and we don't want to. You know, we don't want to take a chance on that mess up our friendship, but some of the stuff they've done since then, Murray Attaway, the main guy in Guadalcanal Diary, he was signed to a solo contract by Geffen in 1989, released one album uh, on that label and then was dropped, didn't do so hot. In 1988, Murray and Jeff Walls did a side project called Hillbilly Frankenstein. Murray was only in it for like a year, and Jeff Wall stayed in it. And I think Hillbilly Frankenstein is great. That's another one of my favorite unsung band. They did only one album. I saw, I did see them live oh, wow. at Exdan. They were really good. Um, a lot of fun. A little more rockabilly. Uh, I know Jeff Walls is now playing with the Woggles, and that's another great garage band. Now, Guadalcanal Diary has done a few reunion concerts, but they're not definitely not a full ba- full time band anymore. And mm-hmm. you know, they definitely called it. Called it quits as a official recording band back then, other than maybe releasing like a live album. I think. Personal story about Guadalcanal Diary, other than the stuff I already said, is they are one band that I always wanted to see play live and never got to see, and it was so frustrating to me because, as I mentioned, when I first discovered this kind of music, you know, alternative punk, whatever, and they were one of the first bands I heard in '91. I really liked their stuff. Seems like I would always go by the Exit Inn and see their name on the marquee. 
It's like, oh, I want to go see them, but I was under 21. You had to be 21 to get in. You know, kept thinking, like, oh, gosh, I wish they'd either play an all-ages show, or I wish I, hopefully I can see them when I turn 21. I eh, never got to see them, because mm-hmm. I turned, uh, you know, I think I turned 21 in, what, 88, 89, I do the math, and um, if they played another show in that brief period of time before they broke up after I turned 21, either for whatever reason I missed it, either my own band was playing a show around the town or something, mm-hmm. or... I saw something else, but yeah, I just never got to see them live, and I always hate that. I always could have. You did get to see Starship. No, never had any interest in seeing Starship. <laughs> just these soldiers march along as they fire one by one. Well, the original plan with these podcasts was to, at the end, was to say something about. I'll give some tribute to somebody who's still carrying the torch that is either sounding like the 80s, looking like the 80s, or something like that. And I, I totally neglected it the last few times we've done this, but I did remember to do it this time. So the band I want to talk about is called, I don't know how you pronounce their name. It, it's D-I-I-V. I guess it's Dive? Div? Anyway, if you like Stone Roses or the Ocean Blue or Innocence Mission, it's that kind of late 80s, early 90s dreamy melodic pop. I happened to be driving around in Kentucky, of course, where I live, and I think Murray State, they have a radio station that just, I don't think they have a live DJ most of the time, it's just a satellite, but they play the song called Under the Sun. good mood when I hear it and I'm hoping to check out their other stuff so just a comment on them to start yeah. off is I thought when I heard that song that you put on there I thought I was thinking more like early 90s that kind of dreamy sort of ethereal stuff yeah like my bloody valentine yeah or the Sundays maybe yeah yeah yeah, yeah that you know curve uh the swerve yeah. driver stuff like that that's what they reminded me more of than right than 80s but you know close enough I suppose yeah so. I, the stone roses is what the automatically came in my head and of course they were late 80s I mean they were right at the mm-hmm. cusp so So the band that I picked out was um, The Sounds. They're a um, Swedish band, okay. female singer. They've been compared a lot to like Blondie and Missing Persons and oh, bands cool. like that. Although I don't really think they sound so much like those bands, but they definitely sound very 80s. Um, you know, kind of more like hard rock with the new wave edge, mm-hmm. kind of like punk new wave mm-hmm. type 80s. And I think they're more compared to Blondie probably because they look more like Blondie. You know? Oh, they're blonde-headed? Well, she is. She, okay. she looks a lot like Debbie Harry back in the day. And, yeah. You know, she's got an all-guy band and they wear a lot of black. But they started in 1999 and uh, apparently are still going today. Uh, I know the song that I, I sent you, Living in America, was off their first album that came out in either 2002 or 2003. Considering that they're back that far, I wouldn't call them a new band, but still way past the 80s. Right. You know? I did see them and play at um, Mercy Lounge once and uh, had an okay turnout. You know, I think they probably would do a lot better now just from name getting around. When I looked at more information about them, They've had have had some more mainstream um, play than I realized. They a song off their third album called Beatbox was actually played in American Idol. Late at night I saw a woman in red. Hey there, honey, that's what she said. Try to move my feet up and down, but the DJ sucked. I'm stuck to the ground. Dance, dance to the beat. That's all I want. That's all I need. I didn't. I want to know the context. I surely nobody performed that song. Right. Because they only performed like top 40 hits on that, but. Maybe it was used as bumper music or something. Huh. And then um, off their fourth album, a song called Something to Die For, 
was uh, apparently in the soundtrack for on Scream 4. I don't like many new bands, and depending on what you call new, mm -hmm. considering how long they've been around, I, they're one of the few I do like. And of course, one of the reasons just they have that really strong retro sound that I love, and uh, I love her voice too. I think she's got a great voice for that kind of stuff. So, well, thanks for coming back by the dumpster and, and showing me what you found in there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm gonna get my dinner from it too while I'm here. If you're still in an obscure 80s mood, you might give a listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 137, where Mr. Taylor also joins us, but to talk about pro wrestlers who recorded music in the 80s, most of it terrible. And if you're just wanting tunes and no talk, go to mixcloud.com and search for Spun Counter Guy. I've got enough mixes up there to keep you busy for weeks, many from the 1980s and some from not. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. Yeah. <laughs>